cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Ellen Nakashima is one of the most influential reporters in the field of cybersecurity. She's written some of the biggest stories at the Washington Post, and she's one of the inventors of the field. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Uh, Welcome back from your strenuous vacation. So tell us how you got into this field. How did you get into reporting on cybersecurity? Well... I was kind of ordered to do it by an editor, actually. Uh, I had been at the Washington Post for close to 25 years, 24 years. Mm. And so for first part of my career, I was, I've done everything from covering cops and courts on the Metro staff to the Virginia State House, and then a little bit of the White House. And then I uh, was a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia for four years. And then in 2006, came back to the States and got a beat on the financial staff doing something really cool. It was called the Privacy, Technology, and Security Beat. Back in those days, 2006, 2009, in the middle of the second half of the George W. Bush administration, there were all sorts of great issues coming to the fore out of technology with, you know, Facebook and Apple and Microsoft and all of these apps starting to be created, and the war on terror in the Bush administration, and, you know, warrantless wiretapping, laptop searches at the border, Mm. fingerprinting, biometric databases, and, of course, big privacy and civil liberties issues. And they were all coming together, and I got to cover that. It was a lot of fun. These were heady and challenging issues, and I just loved it. It was both the consumer side of privacy and then the more sort of civil liberties, national security side, which in truth attracted me more. And then toward 2009, I got asked to move to the national security staff of the Post. And that's when editor at the time, Marcus Broccoli, said he wanted someone to focus on cyber offense, cyber war. Because I had been doing some tech and private and security issues, which included cyber, cybersecurity, fell to me. I really had at that point no real background in it, no aptitude necessarily, no real strong desire. But uh, you know, I was ordered to do so, so I <laughs> went forward. And in yes. fact, I was looking back in my clip files and I searched on your name and and I thought maybe the first article with your name in it that I wrote would have been maybe 2009 2008 it was actually 2007 mm-hmm. so I must I did a page one story about a breach of an, a DHS contractor Unisys and mm-hmm. somewhere in there quoted James Lewis of CSIS famous yeah. famous thank you 
they're on, you know, that my mm-hmm. career was set. And then, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the Bush administration had started to focus on cybersecurity towards the end of, of that term and 2000, really 2007, 2008. And they had something called the uh, CNCI Cyber... The Comprehensive, Comprehensive National Net. Cyber Security Initiative. There you go. You got it. Yeah. And I reported mm-hmm. on that and started to get immersed a little in, in, in the policy issues and the operational issues. And there are obviously privacy concerns about uh, anytime you have the government starting to take look at how it can better protect citizens, you know, computer systems and uh, cybersecurity privacy issues come up. Uh, and then gradually, you know, just step by step, I started doing some reporting. One of the, when I look back at that time frame, I mean, I really fortuitously, in fact, got assigned to this area just as the government and the private sector were really starting to, especially the government, kind of pay more attention to it and grapple with it and try to figure out how to better organize for it, uh, especially in, in you know, my area. I was interested in what the uh, military and the intelligence communities were doing and the National Security Agency, the NSA in particular, because that's where a lot of the expertise resided. And then in sort of special areas of the DOD, of the military. And, uh, you know, and of course, if I was looking at cyber offense and cyber warfare. That's where I was supposed to look. And it's it's interesting that, um, you know, what we've seen over the last 10, 10 15 years now, I guess, is uh, when I look back on it, I, it's the evolution of cyber and how it's really started to come out of the shadows. When I first started mm-hmm. working on this beat, one of the most challenging parts of it was everything was so secret so classified you know it was i talked to mike hayden back you know what, 10 years ago more and he would say he's the former as you know head of the nsa and former head of the cia and he would say cyber cyber weapons are the only you know only weapons we have that are so secret because they were born in the most secretive part of, uh, of, of the U.S. government, their bloodline goes back to Fort Meade, to the NSA, which is where sort of the mm-hmm. most potent cyber tools and cyber weapons were, were kind of created. And of course, it was all classified. So it was very hard to sometimes get at it and, and get at those stories and have an but, understanding. But you always seem to be really good at getting sources. So... You're never going to tell us who they were. I got that. But how did it work? I mean, was it easier with – where was the easiest place to work? The companies, of course, were bombarding you after a while with stuff. Yeah. What did it work like for sourcing? Certainly in the beginning, too, um, because cybersecurity was was emerging as as a real issue, and we started to see some of these firms that are now household names like – Mandiant Fire at CrowdStrike, uh, some of these researchers were were doing really some great work, and they were they were easier to talk to or get to because they were out in the private sector and they were uh, not you know shielded by classification rules, and so you could talk to them, or sometimes they would want to talk to you because they'd want to promote sort of the 
really interesting work and research they were doing. They were they were discovering uh, malware threats and and different groups and threat actors, which was also interesting because back in 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, even though these researchers knew that, for instance, China or a particular Chinese hacker group linked to the government was behind a certain um, malware attack or strain, they were just often prohibited by their companies from saying so, from saying China or Russia. And they resorted to this euphemism, APT. You must remember that, right? APT yeah. or Advanced Persistent I Threat, hate it. which is what they would uh, term a particular group: APT, you know, one, APT fifteen, mm. APT ten. Actually, APT was coined by uh, Greg Rattray, a former Air Force um, cyber uh, operator, who, while still in the government, in the in the military. Uh, came up with APT when he had to sort of brief, uh, I guess it was sort of contractors, and he had to sort of bridge classification rules and, you know, to, to make it easier for everyone involved, he would say he would use APT instead of referring to exactly, you know, China or Russia, but everyone knew, wink, wink, who he's mm -hmm. talking about. I would talk to the researchers, and I guess just by... Doing the stories, uh, starting out with smaller stories, you sort of just get to know the people. I would attend conferences, uh, industry conferences, government conferences, hear the speakers, walk up to them maybe afterwards, after their presentations, talk to people on the sidelines. And after a while, through the, my reporting, I hope to show that I was serious about you know covering mm -hmm. the issue and understanding the, uh, the the policy issues involved, as well as the policy effects and operations intertwined. And people started to, you know, try to help me understand better what I was reporting on. And I'm, you know, very uh, grateful to them for the time and insights they've shared what with me. What was the hardest part of this beat? Sourcing or when it comes to or, yeah. yeah, definitely when you're looking at something that's so mm -hmm. often classified that for people to talk to you sometimes they'd be risking you know they'd be risking their their jobs. You don't want to put that at risk. You don't want to risk their, them, mm -hmm. but at the same time you want to make sure what you're reporting is is accurate, is in context, and as fair, balanced, and nuanced as possible. So I would say that was always the hardest part. It was just also uh, over the years trying to understand the subject matter. It is it is both technical, it's technologically complex, at least for someone like me, <laughs> and uh, and and the policy issues uh, you know are sometimes nuanced. Uh, it also include you know goes into um, both our own domestic law international law. There's so many things you have to kind of keep track of as you're reporting this. You didn't have to sell your editors. This was something they wanted. Ah, good question. It's in even though the executive editor really wanted someone focused on cyber warfare, the <laughs> other editors at the you know, I would say in the newsroom mm. were not quite as I guess hip to the the, the <laughs> urgency, immediacy mm -hmm. of of the or the news 
value of the threat. And I remember for years, too, whenever I wrote a story, there was an editor who would say, well, you, you can't put cyber in the lead. You got to take it out. People don't know what cyber means. I mean, hmm. he had a point, right, that yeah. cyber is sometimes, it's such a vague and amorphous term. It can refer to anything from, you know, social media and digital and today influence operations to actual uh, 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 cyber attacks or operations. And we've talked about the use of the word cyber attack before mm -hmm. you and I or anything. So yes, it helps to be more concrete. But there, there generally was sort of a scratching your head kind of reaction sometimes to these stories at the Post uh, and to the need to sell some editors on them. Different editors had different appetites for these stories. I would say it's it's all individual, personal. I told you a story once about going to a Asian country where the I met with the military and the start of the discussion was them pulling out one of your stories sort of highlighted and everything and asking me about it. So you had a global audience. Did you ever think about your audience? Who do you think you were writing for? I tried to write for really in a way my my mother or my neighbor or someone who who wouldn't quite understand what a, uh -huh. a you know a, a cross site script, you know, scripting uh, mm -hmm. attack was or a waterhole attack just to make it relevant and understandable and approachable to the lay audience but i hoped as well to make it something uh, useful for the the people who care about these issues, whether they're, you know, the policy crowd or diplomats or practitioners uh, in Washington, in, in New York, and and yes, abroad as well, because so much of this, uh, as I learned, just transcends boundaries, mm. and, and it's not just something that affects the U.S. A lot of our stories really have international dimensions. Did you ever get um, hostile reactions or complaints about your stories? The, the, in the last 10 years, I would say the most hostile reactions I've gotten to, to stories have been with respect to our reporting and my reporting around uh, uh, the Russian interference in mm -hmm. the 2016 election mm -hmm. and the uh, investigation into links between you know, Trump oh, associates oh. and uh, Russian officials, that those stories really, yeah, hmm. prompted many hostile uh, responses. From from the general public, not from the the government? Right, from the general yeah. public, yeah. yeah. Okay. But also many, many, you know, notes and emails of support. Uh -huh. uh, sure. Many notes and emails of criticism. What was your favorite story? You knew I was going to ask this one, right. so you were prepared. I'm I prepared. Yeah. I don't have one favorite. I mean, made me start to think back over yeah. these years. And because some of them were quite influential. And, you know, when I look back, I'm thinking, wow, you know, we were just mm -hmm. talking about the global audience. One of yeah. my first uh, big page one stories on on cyber was uh, 2010, I think, but I was writing about a 2008 operation involving uh, the, the CIA and the Saudis setting up a honeypot or like a website in Saudi that was meant to uh, attract jihadis or, or mm -hmm. militants so that the Saudis could keep track of the militants within their their borders and yet and and get intel on them but turns out a number of them were using the site 
for operational purposes and then to help plan their uh, mm. eventual mm. move into Iraq and where they were killing or threatening, you know, the security of U.S. troops. And so that was causing anxiety, great angst with the uh, with CENTCOM and the military guys. And so there was this really interesting internal debate between the intelligence community on the one hand and the military, U.S. military, and the other over whether to keep this website, Honeypot, up or take it down. And it it kind of through that tale, I mean, it's cool, it's kind of sexy, right? Because it mm. has CIA in it and Saudi and Honeypot and it's all classified. But it has beneath it real issues, some of which still resonate today about where, whether and when you can take undertake certain actions outside a theater of war, outside an area of hostility, and maybe what if it involves, you know, going through uh, third-party countries and just, and, and what are the uh, trade-offs involved between keeping a, a, a track of, you know, getting intelligence on the one hand, but then uh, protecting the security of American troops on the other, just you know, real, real life issues that were live at the time and today still also crop up. So in the end, uh, the the military won out. Was as soon as someone said, "Well, you know, lives are being lost, troops are getting killed," that settled it, and and the decision was made to to disrupt it, take it down, and then an early precursor to Cyber Command uh, n- knocked it out. And the Saudi, some of the Saudi royals were very pissed off <laughs> at the loss of their intel. Uh, and as someone said, there was a lot of bowing and scraping going on with the Saudis. So, you know, that was like one of my mm-hmm. earlier stories. Uh, I remember that one. That wouldn't have been the one I picked, though. What would be the one you'd pick? The Defense Science Board report. I already told you this. The one where you, the still classified DSB report on the fruits of Chinese espionage, because it was such a great laundry list of everything they whacked. Yes, yes, indeed. And I that was, gosh, how many years ago now? Oh, a while. A while was ago. 2010? 2010, 2012. Yeah, something like that. But, I mean, just the the scope and scale mm-hmm. of that list was, was breathtaking and um, really showed how intent the Chinese were on, it's just very concerted, in a concerted way, going after uh, plans and secrets and intellectual property that will, and that in that case, advance their own um, aims in, in the military. And we see that, though, as well in, as you know, the sort of the, the advanced technology areas of robotics and biopharmaceuticals and uh, AI and and this administration is undertaking a big effort to to try to stem that. So th- that issue has just kind of gone on and on. And it was there at the beginning and from, from of my beat and has continued as, as a theme and only intensified, I'd say, over the last 10, 15 years. What, um, what's changed then in the last 10 or 15 years? That, one, one thing is profile, which is this used to be a niche and now it's... You were always sort of on the front page, though. But what's changed in the last ten years? Yes, as, as you say, in the A the, section, <laughs> <laughs> as the profile has uh, has mm-hmm. elevated, the that goes hand in hand with, as I said earlier, cyber is kind of emerging from the shadows. There's more of a 
of a willingness to discuss it openly, to talk about uh, cyber, and in fact, mm-hmm. the government now actually has no no real qualms about pointing, uh, calling out China, Iran, Russia, or North Korea. Whereas you remember back in 2010, 2012, even it wasn't until 2014 when they actually sort of came out and with the indictment on the five. Chinese military PLA officers that they really, you know, decided to call out China. Before that, there was this reluctance to even name another nation or country as an adversary in in cyber because maybe that would uh, offend, you know, diplomatic sensitivities and undermine efforts with China to engage or you know ruffle Russian feathers. So uh, that's that's one big difference. Uh, the rise and emergence of U.S. Cyber Command is another. I mean, that's been a, an, an enterprise in you know evolution over the last 10 years. And only in the last few years, would I say, has it been you know starting to really kind of flex its muscles. And as it's done so, its leaders are starting to speak out more. Um, being a military, not the NSA per se, they, they have a little more leeway to, to speak about, about things. But even so, there's still a lot, of, uh, a lot that's not said, a lot that's kept secret. And I do think there still needs to be more transparency mm. about what, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they see the threat. Do you design what stories you're going to do? Do you think, do you have like a, what are you looking at? Are you more of a, you know, it comes along and you look at it. Are you assigned stories? Do you develop your own stories? How does that work? Where do you pick the topics up? Do you, because I've seen sometimes you have said, uh, you know, I'm looking at this and there'll often be a, a gap right. between when you start doing interviews and when the story appears. How does Absolutely that work? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of it is, is, Moving off of, you know, events in the news or what I'm hearing mm. from sources inside the government or in industry, and and it serves just staying on top of that and being attuned to that, and kind of seeing where the momentum is. And part of it is always kind of keeping an eye out or near open for something fresh, new, or unexpected or interesting. Things just also come our way, come my way, mm. my, my colleagues' way uh, from from sources. Some are people we've never heard of before and they bring things in. Others are longtime sources who will tell us things or bring tips or ideas or or um, How often do you get pitched a story? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Look, um, <laughs> I... Uh, and to, to be perfect, yeah. I don't think I've ever pitched a story to you. You've never actually. I don't think have, I have. I, yeah. You know, I think you're right. I think yeah. it's been more. I've heard you say something, and I'll go back to you and say, Jim, you know what you said? I thought that was really kind of interesting. Let me tell me more. And um, because I was for a while covering technology mm. a little more regularly, I would, and I still do, get lots and lots of email pitches from from companies wanting to. You know, hawk a a product or uh, or or bring someone in to talk to me. I get get a lot of those reach outs. Um, a- actual, you know, 
story story ideas that way are kind of they're a little um, less frequent um, because we're not I'm not a reporter who's going to write about a new you know cybersecurity product um, for me a story has to be about you know a, a an operation that someone's undertaking or a new policy or policy initiative or or some step it has to in you know shed light on on something that the government is doing and why it's doing it or on something one of our adversaries is doing and why they're doing it and then maybe more generally what's going on out in the broader public and and what's happening there that we need to be paying attention to so so I look for something like that. You called me up a little while ago about 5G. And so how did you start looking at that? Do you see it as an adjunct to cyber or do you see it as a separate thing? Tell me tell me how you got into 5G. I guess I started And you've been doing it. For about you did a year. Huawei a long time ago. Yeah, Huawei. Huawei. I, I first or as someone told me it's Huawei. But I right. uh first wrote about them back in twenty twelve when hmm. the old hmm. House Intelligence Committee under then Chairman Mike Rogers right. and Dutch Ruppersberger did their investigation into Huawei and ZTE. You remember that? And they mm -hmm. came out with a report uh, bringing to light the, you know, they wanted to publicize the national security threat mm -hmm. from, from these companies, particularly uh, in terms of surveillance. And uh, I, I wrote about that at the time. And I think that was the time, first time they got Huawei in particular put was put on my radar screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, and over the years, you know, I continued to hear about the surveillance threat posed by Huawei. And then I guess it was last year started to hear more and more about government national security concerns with Huawei being in the five G networks, the coming five G networks. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that basically here in the United States, amongst the big telcos, the providers like AT&T and Verizon, they'd already committed they weren't going to be using Huawei in their networks because, after all, these companies work with the – they have contracts with the U.S. government. If they wanted to keep those contracts, they can be using Huawei. Uh, but it was, you know, the – European countries, the the allies and partners that that the U.S. government was concerned about, and I started hearing about their campaign to persuade these countries and allies to to keep Huawei, kick them out of their networks, or at least not put them in their five G networks, because a lot of them are trying to figure out now who they're going to use as they build out five G. And I know you know you and I have spoken a lot, a lot about that. I was going to ask what led you to 5G, but actually you've been doing it all along. So what's the what's the connection here to cybersecurity? Is it just part of the portfolio? Is it an outgrowth? How do you see it? So my beat is really just national security writ large. Mm -hmm. And just because I happened to, over the years, also develop a, a specialty in cyber, cybersecurity, I kind of got thrown a lot of these, or I became known for these stories. But I mean, I should point out, I've also done, you know, was part of the 
team that really did a lot of the, the reporting on the Edward Snowden disclosures <laughs> on uh, over the years. You know, FISA covered <laughs> FISA debates, the USA Freedom Act, the um, FAA. FAA. Yes, that's Section seven hundred two. Covered oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not federal aviation. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so like what? And uh, th- those sorts of issues, encryption, on. Mm-hmm. Um, Hmm. And then more recently, Russian, you know, interference. I mean, 2016 was uh, <laughs> was a was quite an eventful year. Um, I got a call from a source sometime in early June, I think, saying, "Hey, Ellen, I I have a story for you. You're going to like it." And he says, I can't tell you what it is right now, but it it's gonna it's right up your alley in in that it involves cyber national security. And uh at one point I think, you know, he said, I'll tell you in a few days. And I said, So is it gonna be something with national impact? He says, Yes, it is of national import and uh, and I said, So what could it be, you know? And he does it cyber, national security, pol- it's gotta have like, you know, Cyber, maybe national security, politics, sex. He says, yeah, you know, maybe three of those. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few days later, I walked in to uh, the office of uh, Michael Sussman, who is a lawyer here in town at Perkins Coie, who is also the cybersecurity uh, counsel or lawyer for the Democratic National Committee. And he had... Uh, at the table, a table like this, uh, the executive director, Amy Dacey of the DNC, uh, Sean Henry, who was, I believe, the chief operating officer of CrowdStrike, and Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and CTO of CrowdStrike. And they proceeded to walk me through a really amazing story, which was that uh, the DNC's computers had been hacked, and CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity forensics firm, had tracked the intrusions, more than one, back to Russia, to Russian uh, government actors, to two different uh, you know, spy agencies, essentially rival agencies, competing agencies. And uh, so I wrote that story and became the story of the Russian hack of the DNC. And, you know, it's interesting to think back to that time because back then it was like, wow, you know, what, 70, 80, 90, 2000, 40 years after the Watergate break-in here, the DNC was mm-hmm. broken into again, but digitally, and it was the Russians. And the headline was, you know, Russians You don't write had, the headlines, right? I don't yeah. write the headlines. Yeah. But the idea <laughs> was that we, here we were thinking this was the Russians hacking in for, you know, traditional espionage mm-hmm. reasons, spy reasons. They want to figure out, they want to know what the, you know, what the dope was on the potential next president of the United States, whether it was going to be Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders um, and <laughs> whoever. And they also, which was interesting, had gotten hold of all the opposition research that the DNC mm-hmm. had on Donald Trump. And so that was part of the big headline too, was, you know, the, the Russians get oppo research on Trump. But at that point, that's what we thought it was, right? Espionage. And then what? About a little over a month later, 
the there was this big dump on WikiLeaks of more than you know twenty two thousand emails that had been hacked from the DNC, and all of a sudden. You know, a light bulb goes off in my mind. I'm thinking, oh, my God, no, this is not just traditional espionage. Mm -hmm. If they've taken a step further and, in fact, called Hayden, he's always good for just crystallizing it. And he says, you know, if this is what it is, it looks like they've weaponized information. This is sort of information warfare. And so we were seeing this happening in real time, the kind of... Taking this this, this cyber uh, action to a new level of not just hacking in and taking information and and stealing it and using it for your own intel agencies, but putting it out there to affect the chain of politics, you know, in another country to throw a, a monkey wrench in the DNC when it was having its uh, you know national con democratic national convention that week which re actually resulted in the resignation of Dacey Amy Dacey and then the chairwoman of the DNC Wasserman Was Debbie yeah. Wasserman Schultz yeah. and the the democrats were all sort of like living in fear of what else do they have what might they re release next especially because you know, uh, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, the platform the Russians used was was saying they had more and more was going to be coming out and of course, more did. So, for, from that point on, for the next you know year, year and a half, I was very much focused on what the Russians were doing, and what we were hearing was a sort of Russian campaign to interfere in the you know U.S. democracy in a way they'd never attempted before. Right? I mean, they they tried things like this a little in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But to really take on the U.S. and to do it so brazenly, and then we find out all about what they were doing with Facebook and, and social media, it was pretty shocking. You a Julian Assange fan? I mean, look, I actually met Julian Assange. Lucky uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> when was that? Uh, <laughs> late 2017 for a story we did about uh, a, a German hacker who we had heard was maybe someone who had passed some information um, to, had passed the actual potential, you know, hacked emails and stuff to, to Assange. Uh, and that was never proved one way or the other. We don't know if it's, it's true. Nothing ever came out to, uh, to confirm that. But he, he's a very, uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a singular character to say the least. <laughs> How have guys like that changed the newspaper business? Because you have outlets now. I don't know if Assange sometimes calls himself a journalist. Uh, Glenn, uh, what is it, Glenn Greenwald? Greenwald. Yeah. Uh, what? Where does that change your business? So uh, Assange, you know, does is not a to me a journalist in the traditional sense of uh, a journalist that the way you think of. You know, reporters at the Washington Post or New York Times or, you know, any one of the number of uh, online publications. But there's something that uh, he, we all have in common, which is that he, he does and has published information that he's obtained from sources, published it on his website. But, I, you know, we, we don't just publish anything we get and just put it out willy-nilly. We, whenever we get information... From uh, sources, we obviously we we vet it. We try to vet it. We 
want to make sure it's authentic. We uh, talk to as many sources as possible. And especially if it's government information, we, uh, we, we deal with these, the agencies that are in, implicated, involved in this, and do a kind of a balancing of public interest versus harm to national security. And that is something we take very seriously at the Washington Post. We do that before we publish any story. We did that with the Snowden disclosures as well. Um, did you get the stuff? Were you part of the the big Snowden Christmas present package? Or? So my colleague Bart Gilman. Was, oh, sure, that's right. Bart was one of the How three could I forget? reporters yeah. who who got some of the. Bart has a very particular point of view. Bart does, yeah, yeah. I think he's got a book coming out oh, yeah. this year that he'll probably elaborate on that. Mm -hmm. um, but he brought in this, you know cache of documents mm -hmm. and uh, took great pains to secure it, I will also say. And we had a team of reporters who were mm -hmm. authorized to to look at some of these documents and, and then write stories about them. Um, so Bart and I did something on... I think it was Greg Miller and I did mm. something on the the black budget uh, that involved you know the CIA and the various agencies and um, what what programs were being funded that way and um, you know there were stories that included pretty sensitive some sensitive mm -hmm. information or topics and I know our editor Marty Barron and sometimes Bart or Greg would speak to the you know relevant mm -hmm. intelligence community head or the director of national intelligence Jim Clapper to sort of hear out their, to tell them you know what the highlight the, the takeaways were the main points and what they, we were prepared to report and see if they had any concerns please please lay them out so we can mm -hmm. hear you so is that sort of process that we undertook before running stories yeah we had Bart here for uh, one of the more they have this uh, one of the more successful public events about that time, so it was uh, it was a packed room. I remember that, uh, but you weren't surprised by anything you saw in the Snowden stuff, were you? I I was not, but you know. No. Oh, you mean in terms of actual content? Yeah, you knew you. I would have assumed you knew most of this. So, yeah. like for instance, um, the the Prism program that mm -hmm. Bart broke wrote about uh, is, all, is essentially, PRISM is the sort of internal code name for the program that others also call Section 702, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, authorized by Congress in um, 2008, I believe. Was mm -hmm. the, I thought it was the amended the... Oh, the FISA Amendments Act. Yeah, so the FISA Amendments Act. 2008 yeah. was the FISA okay, Amendments yeah, Act, and that's what it was. But what, you know... I think Bart's story laid out that we really didn't know where the actual kind of names mm -hmm. of the companies, which companies were participating, and a little bit more about the mechanics of how that worked. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, mm. and um, of course the big story was the uh, Section Two Hundred and Fifteen phone metadata program that um, Glenn Greenwald wrote about in the Guardian. 
Uh, it was the first Snowden disclosure that sort of set off the whole yeah. following year of stories. Now being closed down, I think. Looks like it's yeah. sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's basically now discontinued. So the question is whether it will be reauthorized or not. It expires. The authority expires. I don't think they expires. care, uh, NSA. I don't think they care. I think the, um, I think the FBI uh, mm -hmm. really cares about it because huh. the, the, uh, the law that authorizes this particular mm -hmm. collection program authorizes more than just this phone metadata. It authorizes the actual routine sort of Section 215 power or authority mm -hmm. that the FBI uses in in many of its investigations and if you you kill that law that authority you kill the sort of the underlying authority mm. that the U, that the FBI uses which has nothing to do with this phone metadata program so that's one reason they want the law reauthorized and um, hmm. that's due to end in December 15th so you know in the coming months we'll probably hear more about that I was going to torture you on encryption, which is one of my pet rocks, but you don't have a view. You do, do you care? I mean, do you use encryption? I do. What do you use, Signal? I use Signal. Of course. Yeah, everyone uses yeah, Signal. Yeah, sure. For for real security, I, I prefer and use Signal. This is to protect your sources. To protect my sources, to protect me, yes. Uh -huh. Where are you going to come out on the encryption debate? Do you care? It's really a tough yeah. one. I go back and forth. Right. I mean, I think it's... It's hit a wall. It's sort of stalemated for the moment. I, I really don't see it moving anywhere. Yeah, it's coming back up again, but I, I, I think it'll be more I mean, kabuki. Yeah, look, I don't see any, yeah. I don't see this administration moving. Um, yeah, I think part of what's going to drive it is that, you know, other countries are getting a little fed up with right, the whole. Right, uh, the Brits, the Australians. Yeah. Well, and the European Union mm. and social media companies, so. You know, I, there, for a long time there was this kind of hypnotic American line about don't regulate, and right. that's just broken down. And it's not just the Chinese and the Russians. So that gets back to your privacy beat, though. I mean, your data protection mm -hmm, beat, mm -hmm. right? So the Europeans are going to do something. What it is, I don't know. But and, and will they? How will they compel? Do you think how will they compel U.S. companies essentially to build in? Uh, lawful access capabilities to... I don't know. Uh, the Chinese have had some success in doing that for the companies Chinese, they've led in. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, they have right. a different form of government. Right? They do. But the Europeans might, you know, it's market access. It's... Uh, yeah. Can they use their market access as a lever to and compel I've heard mixed things. Maybe the market isn't big enough in Europe. Uh, the other part is the fines, which they'll... If nothing else, it gets them some cash, and we've heard the president speak about that. Um, I think it is sort of a little bit of envy that the U.S. has these companies and Europe doesn't, but uh, they're experimenting with ways to change the what let's call it the cyber environment, you know, and they're looking for ways to reshape it to be a little more regular and orderly. So that'll be a good topic mm -hmm. for the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'd be very interested to see if they can actually mm. do anything in the area of, uh, you know, lawful access to end-to-end -end encryption data in motion as opposed mm. to what's on, at rest on your device. Cause I think that part is, is harder, especially when some of these 
are apps developed by groups that are, you know, developers in different countries, mm -hmm. no fixed address, <laughs> no place <laughs> to actually serve a subpoena or a court order on, right? Yeah. How do you think the field's changing? I mean, it is different now because you have... Uh, in the field of journalism? The field of cybersecurity. Journalism you can talk about too, but it's like everyone and their dog does cybersecurity now. And um, have you seen the field change? I mean, when you think about stories now, for a long time it was sort of a green field for you. I mean, you were one of the few people writing about this in the world, you know, and now it's hard to yeah. open a paper. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are so many stories, and mm -hmm. I also, you know, I'm not going to cover every breach. Mm. There's so, so many I know. commercial breaches, right? I tend to, I'm not into ambulance chasing. There you go, the ambulance chasing of cybersecurity. But, I mean, I mentioned you talk about fave stories. I mean, there are also some of these other stories that I look back on as just um, – no, they they were they were fun to do, and I felt like they they did have some impact. Mm -hmm. One was you'll remember this of the back in 2015. Uh, I wrote about how the Obama administration was preparing to impose economic sanctions on on China on certain Chinese companies, maybe individuals who were involved in cyber economic espionage. And this was right, you know, just before maybe a month before Xi Jinping was due to come mm -hmm. to Washington for a summit with Obama, President Obama. And the the story uh, broke and, you know, lo and behold, uh, she s sends a high-level delegation rushing to Washington to come talk to Obama administration officials about ways in which – ways to uh, avert the sanctions and they mm -hmm. kind of negotiated some things and ended up you know, with this pledge where she pledged in the Rose Garden that China would not conduct cyber-enabled economic espionage, uh, which she said they weren't doing, but they wouldn't do. And, you know, that, that we, for a while there, in fact, it looked like they were keeping to their pledge, at least with PLA sort of um, hacks. Uh, but then, yeah. you know, it seems that the another group of hackers, state-sponsored hackers, MSS, were starting to kind of fill the void. But it was still, it was an interesting, I think, moment to see how a story can move policy and to show potentially even the impact uh, that, that sanctions can have in changing behavior, the threat of sanctions, right? And who knows if they had actually imposed them. I mean, some some former government officials say they wish we, that the administration had gone ahead and actually done imposed sanctions. Did you know it was going to be such a big story when you wrote it? I did not have any idea um, huh. that it would, you know, because it did in freak that. out the Chinese. Yeah. yeah. You didn't know it was going, it was to, be. going to I did not know what the reaction would be, oh, okay. frankly. And, uh -huh. uh, and contrary to what some people have thought or surmised, no one – it wasn't a, a leak or sanctioned leak by the That was my next question. Absolutely wasn't. No. <laughs> no. This was just an oh, example. Oh, man. Of, <laughs> Here I've been giving them credit for actually doing something no, right. No. No. It's so funny. I mean, <laughs> there was not – Sorry. I think some actually yeah. in the administration would have preferred that I not write the story because – you know, that would have, because uh, one said. Well, I'm going to take a point off their scorecard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, in the end, it was just me hearing Funny. about something and hearing it from different That's people amazing. together. And 
Yes, there was some gnashing of teeth, I think, inside the administration. Yeah, that was definitely true. But there was also there were also some people secretly thinking, well, you know what? Good. <laughs> this was great. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Always good to be with you. Thanks for listening to Cyber from the Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start. <laughs>